Our first reading is from St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and after they received the Holy Spirit, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered him, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from St. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between Spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, 
to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and sat upon the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended all every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So today will be the second of a two-part sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Those who were here for part one last week will recall that we addressed the question or debate of how many baptisms a Christian should expect. The Orthodox Christian position has historically been that there is one baptism, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But we compared this to the view dominant in Pentecostalism and in much of Charismaticism, where it is taught that there are two separate baptisms. First, a baptism with water, and then a baptism of the Holy Spirit that can be expected or sought at a later time, and is typically believed to be signified by the gift of tongues. That's how it's taught. 
Well, with the help of Frederick Bruner, I showed how careful interpretation of Scripture affirms that one can be assured of the full reception of the Holy Spirit with simply the combination of faith and only a single baptism, while there is insufficient support for the two-baptism view. But I also explained how even if one wants to quibble about the proper understanding of this scripture or that scripture, because a second baptism doctrine inevitably makes a demand on believers in excess of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this makes it incompatible with the biblical gospel. But for part two today, I want to now turn our attention to the subject of supernatural spiritual gifts and experiences to consider what the boundaries are for maintaining a godly and biblical mindset toward these things. Now this past week, many of our life groups looked at that excerpt from Acts chapter 8, specifically verses 14 through 17, to consider how to reconcile what happens in that episode with the broader, broader biblical witness of a single baptism. But today, our first lesson includes that episode as well as the larger context around it, which tells of an interaction between the apostles and a man known as Simon the Magician. And we quickly learned that this Simon had lived his life as a self-promoting egoist. As verse 9 says, he was known for telling others how great he was. Sure, that was fun to be around. Indeed, he survived off of being this way, as he was a practicer of magic, which required that he project an abundance of self-confidence. Now, to grasp what a magician would have been like in those days, we should think less David Copperfield and more something like a sorcerer or a modern-day psychic who seeks to perform supernatural wonders for other people, or in front of other people, for their own financial enrichment. And yet the passage reports that when the apostle Philip had come to Samaria performing signs and preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and what God had done in Christ, this Simon was among the Samaritans who believed and were baptized. However, in the case of these Samaritan converts, we also have the only record in the New Testament of persons who believed, accepted Christian baptism, and had nevertheless not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, just as an aside on that, Bruner's explanation, which some of us talked about in Life Groups this week, is that God allowed for this anomaly of suspending the gift of the Holy Spirit for a short time in order to create an occasion for the Samaritans to be brought into communion with a church that to this point had been comprised solely of Jews the sworn enemies of Samaritans. This happened through having the head apostle Peter with John come and impart the gift of the Holy Spirit to them by praying and laying hands upon them. Well, when Simon, the magician, sees Peter and John do this, he takes it to mean that there is a separate or further gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he immediately kind of perceives, what he perceives causes him to believe in kind of the second level approach to Christianity that we debunked last week. 
he perceives that this Christian thing can offer him some additional power. So operating in his old self, that is always looking for a way to make a buck, Simon offers the apostles money, saying in verse 19, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter immediately rebukes him, saying, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now this word obtain that Peter uses in verse 20 is key because everywhere else in the book of Acts, everywhere else the book of Acts describes the Holy Spirit as being received. It uses a different Greek word to mean received. But here we find Peter using the Greek word meaning to obtain. So the way we should understand what's going on here is that this Simon perceives there is a next level to Christianity that gives one special power and he wants to obtain it. He wants to give something in return for it so that he can monetize it, of course, just as he had done with his magic powers before. Yet don't be distracted by the crassness of Simon's offer of money. His deeper problem is that instead of being satisfied to receive the simple gift of God through faith, Simon covets spiritual power for himself. And he is fully willing to move beyond simple faith and into the realm of payment or what Paul might call the realm of works in order to acquire that spiritual power. Now while this passage from Acts certainly indicates that God's work in the world can indeed include the supernatural, Peter and John's interaction with Simon the magician serves as a warning to believers, a warning against seeking out the the supernatural with impure motives, or also against being just inappropriately fixated on the miraculous in our spiritual lives. But how can we know where those boundaries are? Well, I want to explore what priority we should give to the supernatural in our spiritual lives and whether there can be good reasons to seek out or ask for spiritual gifts or experiences and how we can distinguish those reasons from the bad reasons to do it. Well, the apostle's response to Simon the magician is pretty clearly a reproach of seeking spiritual power to advance oneself. So that's one bad reason to seek the supernatural, to advance oneself. But to identify some other ways that a fixation on the supernatural can be problematic, I want to turn to our second lesson this morning from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Even though many of us have probably read chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians countless times, we may not have been aware when we read it that Paul's primary purpose in this section is to address a preoccupation with the supernatural spiritual gifts. A preoccupation with them that has arisen in the Corinthian church. So in verse 1 of our passage from chapter 12, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. And then he proceeds to address some poor motives he thinks these Corinthian Christians might have for being preoccupied with them. 
And what Paul addresses first is the mistaken notion that supernatural spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues, can serve as evidence of God's approval or of the assurance of salvation or assurance that we have the Holy Spirit. What Paul says in verse 2, it can be a little hard to grasp, so let me kind of interpret it for you. Paul's reminding these Corinthian Christians that before they came to Christ, they had been worshipers of false gods, right? Corinth was full of temples to false gods. And it was not uncommon in that worship for that worship to include ecstatic or spiritual experiences. So Paul's point is that if the Corinthian Christians had these spiritual experiences while worshiping false gods back in the day, then having spiritual experiences now that they are in Christ cannot therefore be taken as proof that one is actually operating in God's will. In other words, just because God, just because you're having some spiritual miraculous experience is not to sanction everything about your heart toward God. It's not really proof of anything, Paul's saying. Instead, in verse 3, Paul's suggesting that something much more ordinary, such as a person's words, is a much more reliable indicator of the state of their relationship with God. And this is consistent with what Jesus taught. You recall he taught that out of the mouth come the things of the heart. So our words, our actions, are much better indicators of the state of our heart, our spiritual state, than any miraculous or supernatural experiences we might be involved with. But Paul develops this point further in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is not in your bulletin, but it is on that yellow insert. Uh, I've quoted from it. You know, that's that famous chapter on love, the one you hear all the time at weddings and stuff, kind of out of context. Not completely, I mean, it's, it's fine, it applies. Paul's really talking about spiritual gifts here, right? You know, that's, so that's the passage that love is patient and kind, love doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, and faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. That chapter, right? Well, the whole point of that chapter, chapter 13, is that the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are the real evidence of the Holy Spirit's work within a person. So the fruits of the Spirit, which Paul elsewhere identifies as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are actually, you know, which can all be summed up with the word love, those are actually much better indicators of the Holy Spirit's work within a person than supernatural gifts or experiences. The best evidence for the Holy Spirit in someone's life is an increase in love towards their neighbor or in love towards God, not spiritual gifts. So having in that first paragraph, Paul's ruled out the supernatural spiritual gifts as evidence of the Spirit. In the second paragraph, Paul then moves on to debunk any notion that the supernatural spiritual gifts indicate a person's superiority over other believers who maybe don't have the same gift. He's debunking any idea that that makes them more approved of by God than someone who doesn't have the gift. 
So to make this point, in verse 4, Paul, first of all, insists that the variety of gifts are all from the same Spirit. Right? No matter what gift you have, it's all from the same Spirit. Then in verse 7, he suggests that the primary purpose of the gifts is not to benefit the individual, but to benefit, quote, the common good. And, And this is a point he'll take up later in chapter 14 of this letter which is also quoted on your bulletin insert. There he'll famously teach that a gift like the gift of prophecy is actually of much greater value than the gift of tongues because it has a greater potential to build up others in the church than tongues does. Tongues actually has the least capacity to build up the church and therefore is the least of all the spiritual gifts. But then back to our passage in chapter 12, Paul next lists some of the spiritual gifts, right? He doesn't list all of them. There's others listed, for example, in Romans 12 and elsewhere. But but in verses 8 through 10 here, he lists both miraculous and unmiraculous spiritual gifts altogether. Again, demonstrating that they're all from the same spirit, as he said in verse 4. Then in verse 11, Paul explains that the Holy Spirit apportions these gifts in accordance with his will. Which is to say that he doesn't apportion these gifts to distinguish the more spiritual believers from the less spiritual, as we in our sinful pride might be want to think. So what we learn from Paul here is that while we may encounter or experience the super, supernatural elements in our faith, right? He's saying that the supernatural is not the goal, though. So you may, ha- you may encounter the supernatural in your, fa- in your faith, whether it's gifts, experiences, but Paul's saying that's not the goal. Almost as if that happens, it's kind of incidental. The goal of the Christian life is love to transform our hearts to be more and more like Christ in love toward God and our neighbor. So the criticism Paul is leveling against the Corinthians' pursuit and preoccupation with the spiritual experiences is that it's essentially another version of that broad way of living that most of the world is seeking, right? Which is ultimately about feeding one's own ego, right? Puffing oneself up. So instead, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to seek to follow the narrow and much more difficult way that Christ leads, the way that may be less spectacular at times, which is the way of patient love. We all should do airplane mode. Well, airplane mode. Sorry. But what can make it so tempting to pursue the supernatural? What what makes that tempting for us? Maybe you're not tempted by it, but many are. Well, to discover some answers to that question, I want to turn for a few minutes to our gospel passage from Luke 3 and 4. The excerpt from chapter 3 is Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, an episode we looked at last week from Matthew's gospel. But chapter 4 shows that immediately after being baptized, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Now, most of you have probably encountered this passage enough to be familiar with what happens next and the three ways that Satan tempts Jesus. But just to review, first, he tempts Jesus to satiate his own hunger by turning stones into bread. And second, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world in exchange for merely worshiping him, worshiping Satan. And the third is that Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to allow God's angels to rescue him. Well, interestingly, Frederick Bruner suggests that there is a parallel between these three temptations that Jesus resists and the common motivations among believers for becoming fixated on the supernatural. Say it again. There's a parallel between these three temptations of Christ and common motivations that Christians may have for becoming fixated on the supernatural. You'll notice that Satan begins each of the temptations with the phrase, if you are the Son of God. So with that first temptation, the first temptation is for Jesus to do something miraculous. He's challenged to do something miraculous, turning stones into bread in order to provide evidence that he is the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, then do this. Come on. Prove it. So what Satan is calling into question here is whether Jesus is truly loved and accepted by the Father. It's kind of like echoes of Eden, right? Did he really say he loved you? Recall what's just happened at Jesus' baptism. That's what God has said. The Holy Spirit descended on him and God the Father said from heaven, You're my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus is able to resist Satan's temptation and be satisfied with the assurance provided at that baptism. And yet we are so much more vulnerable to doubt whether God really does love and accept us. So instead of being assured by our baptism or by the fruit of his spirit in our lives, we may seek for God to give us something more. To give us some proof. Like some supernatural sign. Just like Paul observes in the Corinthian Christians. However, Jesus taught in Matthew 16 that it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. And while Jesus teaches in John 14 about those who are unable to receive the Holy Spirit because they can't see the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like, if I can't see it, I don't believe it. Jesus then teaches in John 20 in the interaction with Thomas, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we are called to trust that by virtue of merely our faith and the outwardly unsensational event of our baptism, we have been made children of God, no matter what anybody says. We're called to let that be enough. That's what faith is. I don't need to see. I'm going to trust. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation is is not for Jesus to do something miraculous per se, but rather to seek power in order to advance himself. 
So this temptation parallels that sin of Simon the magician from Acts 8, who despite coming to believe in Christ, ultimately proved to be more interested in advancing his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. So this temptation could serve as a warning to the wonder-working televangelists and itinerant preachers, even pastors and just plain old churches, who use promises of miraculous healings and blessings to exploit the poor and exploit the vulnerable and advance their own ministries that serve themselves more than the kingdom of God. Jesus' response to Satan is what? In verse 8, he affirms that the aim of his life is to serve God rather than himself. In fact, Jesus believes that as long as he concerns himself with glorifying the Father, then the Father will worry about glorifying him. And that is the mentality that enabled Jesus to remain faithful even unto death because he trusted that God would vindicate him. And of course, his resurrection did just that. Well, finally, we'll turn to the third temptation. Satan's third temptation is for Jesus to induce a miracle by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple, which would certainly create quite the spectacle. Well, in this, we find a parallel to what Paul's attempting to discourage in verses 4 through 11 of that 1 Corinthians 12, which is the desire to seek out the supernatural in order to be impressive or to appear superior to others. Let's take this a little further. I should note that there are some in the Pentecostal movement who insist that displays of divine power and glory are valuable for bringing others to faith. That's a kind of an argument that's made. They, they point out that if Jesus, and then later the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, if, if, they, if their miracles were used to bring others to faith, then shouldn't we also use miracles to bring others to faith, so they'll be like, wow, maybe I should believe in this Jesus guy you believe in. Well, the problem with this argument is that even Jesus' own miracles were not all that successful in leading people to faith. He wasn't batting a thousand. He's the Son of God. One thinks of John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000, but by the end of that chapter, almost everyone who was a part of that scene and that miracle, almost every one of those people except his 12 disciples have deserted him. And he's saying, are you guys going to desert me too? I guess I would ask, what if the purpose of Jesus' signs was not so much to impress people into believing, but to instead bring about revelation, to reveal truths about his identity or about the kingdom and salvation that he offered. But even at Pentecost, when 3,000 end up coming to faith and being baptized in Acts chapter 2, yes, the apostles were miraculously enabled to speak in, in the languages of those people, but, but it wasn't being impressed by that miracle that ultimately caused the people to believe in Jesus. It may have practically enabled them to, to hear what the apostles had to say, but it was really the, gospel, the content of the gospel that Peter preached to them after that miracle 
that led them to faith. Even in Acts 8 that we read today, right? Philip had performed all of these signs and he'd healed the sick in verses 6 and 7, but people actually come to faith through what? Through his preaching, according to verse 12. Well, that's to say that faith does not come from being impressed by signs and wonders, but rather from the Holy Spirit moving on people's hearts when they hear the good news. As Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And yet, entire evangelistic strategies have been based upon impressing people into the faith. Uh Uh-oh's right. Right? I mean, these churches are actually some of the, the fastest growing churches in the world. But what gospel are they converting people to? Right? Is it the biblical gospel? Or is it prosperity? Or healing? All these peripheral things to discipleship to Jesus. See, in great contrast to the evangelistic strategy of impressing people into the faith, Bruner suggests that we should instead expect the church and individual Christian believers to actually seem outwardly unimpressive and full of weakness. Read Paul. Read what he says. He's talking about it all the time, right? He wants us to embrace that, not seek to be impressive. Bruner writes, instead of despising these weaknesses in the church as the crucified Messiah himself was despised, Christians are called upon with the particular and unique gifts they have, patiently and compassionately to seek one thing for this always somewhat offensive and generally unimpressive institution of the church, to seek the church's upbuilding. Building up the church. Because from the perspective of faith, this unimpressive entity is the body of Christ. What the world can't see may not be impressed by. We can. So we spent a lot of time this morning identifying bad reasons for seeking out or asking for supernatural experiences or spiritual gifts, such as in order to make ourselves seem impressive or to advance our own interests or as evidence that God really does love and accept us. But could there also be good reasons to seek such things out? Well, yes, I believe there are. The final two passages on your yellow insert this morning are from Paul's writings to Timothy. Timothy was an apprentice of sorts as a pastor under Paul. Paul called him his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. But there, Paul exhorts Timothy, quote, do not neglect the gift you have. And then the second one, quote, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Well, from this, all of us should take encouragement to, first of all, seek to discern any gifts of the Spirit that we may have been given, right? We all got something. If we got the Spirit, we got something. Second, 
to then use those gifts of the Spirit to use them in love of God and the building up of His church. But here, here's what our governing principle needs to be to kind of know whether we're in the boundaries or outside. The governing principle for the right use of any spiritual gifts, whether miraculous or not, is that they should always be in service of loving God or our neighbor. Spiritual gifts should always be used in service of loving God or our neighbor. And according to Paul, this principle means that we should seek out or ask for tongues the least of all. Because it's the least effective at that. But rest assured, the Holy Spirit desires that we open ourselves up. He desires to to work in and through every single one of us. But whether he chooses to do that miraculously or not, that's entirely up to him. And it's not indicative of anything superior or lesser than. Bruner observes that the final verse of our gospel passage, and that final verse, despite having just rejected all of Satan's temptations to misuse or grasp for the supernatural, verse 14 reports that Jesus nonetheless returned from the desert in the power of the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Jesus turned his back on all these supernatural temptations, and yet Luke says, still says that he returned from the desert in the power of the Spirit, which just goes to show once again that being full of the Spirit does not, does not necessitate supernatural manifestations. But as believers, we must not neglect the Holy Spirit within us. So we should ask the Lord to bestow upon us gifts for service as well as the wisdom to discern any gifts he may have already imparted to us that we might begin to fan them into flames and further his kingdom on earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.